Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Watson here, freelance writer, player of games, writer of order, quarter of videos, and at tabletop role-playing aficionado. Welcome to the Thursday edition of my bi-weekly behind-the-scenes DM-only livestream, Crafting Icewind Down, which I build, write, and prepare for our next session of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. If you are playing characters of Robin, Ray, Celeste, Edmund, or Thimbleweed, this is not the right stream for you, but for the rest of you. Welcome, assuming you're okay with spoilers. We stream our sessions live on YouTube every Friday. Watch all of our sessions and reviews here on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Rogue Watson and join our official Discord server with invite link into the description below. If you would like to support the channel, you can check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. For our campaign, we use roll20.net. For streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. We're still talking about the Necropolis of Etherin. And we have pretty much covered what I want to do with the Arboretum on Monday's stream which I'm presuming is going to take up the majority of our session. Uh, tomorrow, we also have the Tower of Divination, which I can go over again for today's stream, because we'll probably make it there tomorrow's session. And then beyond that, we really need to start figuring out what all uh, I actually want to run beyond this area once we start making it into kind of this district, because... I've already expanded the library by quite a bit. I've expanded the Arboretum by quite a bit. I expanded the Chain Lightning Stadium by quite a bit. And I know it's kind of affecting the pacing. I mean, I, I do love the content in Aetherin. I think it's a lot of fun. But we're also, like, reached this big end-state area with a lot of story things going on. And just because of the nature of D&D and the fact that we don't go hours and hours and hours when we do get together... Um, I'm concerned about dragging things on for too many sessions, and thus the pacing kind of suffers as a result of that. And even with the current pacing, I'm probably going to have to uh, level the players up again just while they're kind of still exploring Aetherin, and then maybe level them up a final time, maybe for like the final area when they actually reach the Spire, because we are approaching session uh, 6, I think, in Aetherin. This is going to be... Uh, 81, I believe. Got that written down correctly. And on average, they make it about six to seven sessions <laughs> before they level up. There was some exceptions. We had a very long level. I think it either four or five was extra long, and we had a very short one. I believe that was like seven or eight, which was very short. But uh, on average, that seems to be where we end up in. So I also have to look for kind of a good... Um, big story moment or some kind of event that would make sense for them to level up in and I'm not sure at this point exactly what that moment is going to be so they're going to be they've done uh, they, they actually finished up the library 
which was nice. First time we actually wrapped up an area, although that's also because we went like three hours. Um, the Arboretum, I think we'll finish that up because there's going to be no, you know, encounters from here to the Arboretum. And then even though that'll be combat related um, and some social stuff, I presume we're going to be able to get through it. Uh, and if you want more on that, go watch that Monday episode because I covered the Arboretum quite a bit there. So we can talk about the Tower of Divination, which is, it's actually, and then I've run out of towers that I need to prep for. I still need to uh, throw in the Necromancy Tower. And then at that point, once we've prepped all of this stuff up here, we can really make a hard decision on how much content we actually want to run over here versus how much is my off-screen NPCs taking care of things because that's where I can really make some major pacing adjustments is saying like, okay, you guys don't even have to go explore half the city, which is good because this is the, the half that's not really fleshed out nearly as well. Uh, and instead you can get together and, and just have all that information as if you'd already done it. Um, although, as was pointed out, there are some good towers in here. The only ones I particularly were keen on skipping was Transmutation and, and probably Enchantment. Um, whereas I liked Illusion and Evocation, but those are pretty far deep in here, so I'd have to come up with um, some excuses. And, and honestly, Illusion just is fun for me. I think it's just a big role-playing one, and I think the players have a kick out of it. But I could always swap them around and say, like, this one's actually Illusion, this one's Evocation, if I really want to do Illusion first and let them do it. Um, but the one thing I can't do is is cheat and move the towers around so that they're closer by because they're pretty clearly... Uh, I haven't labeled them as officially that's what the towers are on the map, but they clearly look like they are the arcane towers on the map. All right, so Tower of Divination, which we should already have mostly covered here. By the way, hello to Nate, Rodrigo, Jerry, and Stan. Welcome to the chat. Yes, I can always swap them. That's very true. I always have that ability. In fact, I do that pretty frequently as uh, as the DM with one of the few things, uh, pieces of hidden information that I have. Uh, I will absolutely swap things around an overland map just to make them uh, either more densely packed or if I want to have explore some things more than others. Um, I, I do that quite a bit to make some uh, story adjustments. So the Tower of Divination is the one with all the uh, the kind of broken ori uh, here in the first level. And we've already actually eliminated the magens which are guarding this lower level because we kind of already did that with Tower of Abjuration and it just feels like the last thing you need to add to this tower is more combat. So this is from the Expanded Towers of Aetherin, obviously. Uh, and I'm surprised that the magen are actually in there because this one is such a combat-heavy scenario at first. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to let them be able to do... They're going to be able to see these Nothics out here um, whether or not they actually have to fight the Nothics is kind of up to them, but that I'm almost tempted, and I think, Stan, it might have been you that mentioned this whenever we talked about this tower last time, of just having the uh, Nothics, like, you can see them, and maybe even it takes, like, a passive perception. In fact, do these things have a, a stealth score I can proc off that or not? The baseline Nothic does have a stealth of plus five, so you assume it would be... Uh, a 15 passive perception or perception check to be able to see them. So maybe everybody who has a 15 or higher perception will be able to notice Nothics like seeing the thing. And, and maybe they're milling about the area. And if the players want to do a surprise round, they can. Otherwise, uh, the Nothics would basically just maybe even flee uh, when they saw the players. So that could be something I could take into consideration. In other words, not really force a fight out here because I know that as the DM that uh, there is a fight that is coming, which is going to be this interesting like... Boy, I was going to say, an interesting wave-based fight. I've just thrown, like, several wave-based fights to the players, and I'm realizing that. The library 
I kind of did that with, uh, it wasn't really wave-based, but it was spawns every round. It spawned a new enemy. And the Arboretum is going to be a wave-based fight where they have to protect uh, the one person crafting the wand while waves of enemies come at them. And now this one, I've got waves of enemies coming at them. <laughs> Crap, I just realized I'm just doing this a little too often. And yet each one kind of has a different thing and a different theme going on. And that one, they had to, they had to protect somebody. In this one... It's just they have to survive a number of rounds, but they have this added uh, quirk where all of these uh, planets, you can touch them and activate some kind of ability, which either gives you a buff or activates a uh, some kind of AoE damaging effect, which the players can hopefully use to their best ability. And I'm going to be pretty obvious about explaining um, how it works. Maybe when a player walks in, they first get the... Um, you know, give them a second to describe the room, and then I'll basically give them all a premonition when I describe the ceiling, and they'll get the, see this one, your vantage point of the room suddenly shifts, a dozen Nothics burst into the room and catch your allies unprepared, after a moment you're back where you're standing and feel all your senses briefly heightened, literally it's final destination, right, it's like you see, I guess, horrible, in fact, I can even describe it as such, um, even though Nothics, the players would know, wouldn't really be able to do much to them, even with waves of them, just because they're so high level. But still, um, I, I could describe these Nothics bursting in the room and like tearing people up apart and all this. And then I'll also need to describe these things as being magical. Let's see. Because they have a chance to uh, activate each one, but only once. Yeah, and you actually put them in initiative order right then. And the key there is round one, they all get a chance to uh, uniquely... It's almost like I'm telling them a surprise round is coming, and yet they're automatically not surprised. And not only that, but they get to all have a, a round of combat without enemies in there, which hopefully isn't too confusing for them. Um, really, it's a chance for them to go around and touch these planets and activate the things, because I believe the three that are damaging, which we did... Uh, change some of them, by the way. The one of them still does a fireball. The other two does, I think this one is Tidal Wave. The other one is Moonbeam from the moon, which I like that one. And then these two give you some kind of buffs. The three AoE ones are delayed. So they don't even activate until the next round. And I believe it's tied to that person's turn on when that actually gets activated. So the sun, when touched, the sun casts a fireball spell centered on itself at the beginning of the next turn of the character that touched it. Actually, have to keep track of who's touching it, and then at the start of their turn, that's when it's actually fully activated. And you know, the part of it is the players. What I want to do is kind of tell is tease the fact that these are magical in some nature, but not really give away about what they do, so that they want to use them. But it's kind of a risky thing where it's like, I don't know, I'm going to touch this thing, but I'm not going to know what it does. So. Yeah, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe that can be part of the premonition, or if it's just a question of maybe Valrobin kind of permanently has detect magic on at this point at all times. Uh, maybe I can tease the fact that these are all magical. I don't know if they would, I guess they would all be, um, have whatever their schools of spells on them would be the magic that is detected. And then I would have these Nothics come at them. So the ones that are on the map now are basically just here in case the players do want to treat this as a normal combat encounter. But yeah, and as Stan was saying, I like the idea of just having these Nothics like run away from the party. Um, maybe they're just, I don't know, they're usually into the magic, but maybe they want to get in here and they just kind of run away like rats scurrying around. So I have these on the map, but I'm 
honestly not... Um, in fact, I'm tempted to kind of move them off the map. Or maybe I'll just... Maybe I won't put the players... You know what I'll do? I'm not going to put the players on this map until they make it inside the door. Would probably be a better idea. Uh, putting these so I can remember to put the players on this map too. This is the only one I believe that actually even has an outside to the tower because of this fight out here, which... Again, I'm trying to downplay all these extra fights because there's so much combat already. I mean, three waves of enemies bursting in is plenty long, and I don't think we needed this extra one outside, and then, goodness knows, I don't think we needed the Majin ones guarding uh, the inside as well. I mean, I, I like the main theme of this tower a lot, but I think it had too much combat, and that was with level 9 uh, PCs originally, too. On that? Oh, that's right, Edmund went down. I need to, uh, I definitely need to adjust that. Probably not for the purposes of this campaign, but um, probably make it to where you actually don't get a save if you hit zero hit points, but you straight up just get a lingering injury. Um, and that way it doesn't like just reward people with like high con, which con's already a great stat anyway. So in the future, I think that will be a balance change that I make is I like the lingering injury rule that we use. It helps um, avoid that weird metagaming thing of like we shouldn't heal people unless they go down. In this case, it's like, no, but if you go down, you get a lingering injury. So it's it's behooves you all to uh, play more like heroes would. I mean, the players do, I think, a good job of that anyway. But And actually heal people before they reach zero hit points. I think we've got plenty. So the, and then, Yeah, so the first round, they'll be able to move and hold an action. Give me descriptions of... A glance at the starting of the first experience, a vision of how the spheres throughout the room may be of use to them during the battle. Roll the celestial vision table below. It's different from what information cleaning can be roll duplicate. So what I could do is just say everybody gets a... Okay, so maybe I'll do it like this. Everybody gets the one vision. With it. They make it in here. I describe the room. I'll show the map. Um, and I'll describe the premonition they get of the Nothics coming up in the part. And then afterwards, I will have everybody roll a d10. And then depending on what they roll, that's the, that's the unique premonition they get. And I'm not going to do any rerolls. So it's just a chance. So it behooves the players to roll as different numbers as possible so that they get all the information. But they may not. You could have two players roll a 5 and two players roll a 6. And then they're only going to know one piece of information, which is this one. Um, you all witness a vision of placing a hand. Although I need to make sure I redo them because I changed some of them. <laughs> Toral's is the same. Toral gives you, and it doesn't even say it gives you stone skin. It just says observes your flesh becoming armored in rock. So you can try to metagame that, obviously, but I think that's a fun way of doing it. And that way, we we kind of avoid the situation of players like accidentally placing their hands on there and activating things so soon. And then after we do all that, so I'm I guess I realize I'm railroading them a little bit, but I think my crew would appreciate. Um, this format of doing things instead of the, you know, walk around and touch all the things and activate them too soon. So instead, we walk in, I show them the map, I give them the premonition, I have them roll on the table, which does give them all a chance to, you know, randomly determine which vision they get, and it may get that they learn all of them, may get they only know some of them, and then I immediately put them in initiative order, I have them roll initiative, and then in round one, they know they have some time, so it's like them being like, okay, we've got seconds, whatever it is, like six seconds, uh, to prepare before uh, these creatures come bursting in the door behind us. The one thing I haven't um, figured out is what happens if the players just decide to, like, bar the door, <laughs> right? That seems, like, so obvious. 
What if they had like a magical lock spell or something? I don't know if they have arcane lock. I hope they don't. I feel like what would happen then? I guess the Nothics, maybe it would, they, you know, you could say one of them spends an action like tearing open the door or something is probably how I would rule it. But that would be a pretty funny, obvious thing. Is like, well, obviously we want to like bar the door and keep people from getting in there. They do not have any kind of arcane lock spell, thankfully. And also, how does this door... Door locked? Welded shut. The iron door to the tower is welded shut from inside. The door can be broken through with a successful DC 25 athletics check. Characters can work together with a combined strength score of 30 to succeed automatically. I mean, basically, Frey plus anybody else can just open it. So that's almost not even worth making a check for then um, in terms of being able to break the door down. So maybe that's a good excuse of why the Noth... I think it's done that way, so that way the Nothics haven't broken through yet, but the players... Um, actually, that's pretty clever, so the players will have to break it through, and thus the door is no longer there. So that's actually a good way of uh, ruling that. Problem solved. So, yeah, we'll have them roll initiative. They'll get the first round. Um, I'll need to... The ones I'm changing, I think, are just these two, which is... The moon is actually going to cast a moonbeam, so I'll have to rewrite that one. Character witnesses a vision of placing a hand on the small gray sphere. Then I will say, um, you observe a uh, beam of uh, moonlight, like, firing down upon it, basically. I'm making that very obvious, but oh well. <laughs> and then for uh, Carpri, uh, witnesses a vision of placing a hand on a liquid-filled blue sphere. And then you witness a um, rolling wall of water just, like, gushing, um, exploding everywhere. And then I've got it so it'll probably, like, shoot towards the center of the room. Now, what the players will probably not realize, and they might think, like, well, gosh, you know, having this thing explode in a fireball is going to be pretty dangerous because you have to touch it. Although maybe they'll get clever and use Mage Hand. I might be able to allow that. Um, what they don't know is these are supposed to be delayed. Uh, at least the fireball is, which I could make, you know, obviously the others follow suit. Uh, where does it say that for? Up here, okay. Uh, center on itself at the beginning of the next turn of the character touch. Yeah, so I mentioned that earlier. So uh, all three of those, I think I would follow the same rule. They basically won't act. So it gives you a chance to basically set it up as a trap, which I would love to watch the characters try to use this cleverly, but also all of these AoEs have a very good chance of hitting the players themselves. Probably not Moonbeams. That's only a... Uh, was it a... Did we remember it's a five-foot or if it's a, it's a full ten-foot? I think it's a, just a five-foot area. So that one's a little bit harder to get blasted by, but it allows players to, like, grapple Nothics and shove them into it, obviously. Um, the other ones, though, are going to be pretty hard to avoid. As you can see, I've got the uh, fireball set up here, and then the uh, wall of water will basically smash its way kind of right there. I've got it moved, though, just so I don't have multiple things in the GM layer. Screw me up. And then it will go through three rounds of combat. So the first round will be... Re and I'm kind of leaving this the same. I honestly haven't scaled this up, although I'm willing to hear if you all think I should scale this up a bit. Maybe I should have five creatures around instead of four. Oh, I've got Valin here, too. Poor Valin. And Lord Marbury. God damn it, I always forget about... Pegasus has been a thorn in my side. Uh, I, I am not a fan of player summons in general, or player allies. But players like them, so... Do my best to acquiesce. I, you know, I say that as somebody who had a, uh, a familiar throughout uh, one of Chris's campaigns. <laughs> Although at least that one is baked into the character class that I concocted. Uh, so this is actually as written for the original level 9 uh, adventure, and I haven't changed it. It's three Nothics and a Stalker, 
two Nothics and two Stalkers, then three Nothics and a Preeminent, which I really like the extra higher level Nothic stat blocks here. I just don't know how tedious it would be adding more uh, creatures onto each one, but they are level 13, so maybe I need to make it a little bit uh, dicier. I'm willing to hear everyone's thoughts on uh, the number of creatures coming in here, but and otherwise, once that's done, it, it actually says, as written, once the preeminent falls, uh, any remaining Nothics flee from the tower and trouble the party no more. It also says they flee if reduced below 10 hit points, so I guess that's something. Uh, and then once that is done, they can make it up the stairs and talk to our slot friend, who is actually one of the high wizards who has been... Uh, transformed into a slot. Um, she it must need to be at least mostly um, not altogether there because I don't want the players to be able to just talk to somebody, although they will get a chance to do that with the Tower of Necromancy. Uh, and in fact, yeah, must make a successful DC 20 persuasion check to avoid making her hostile. So an initially, she will actually be pretty mean and, um, you know, kind of want to fight them. And I believe she's wearing a robe of eyes. The players. Yeah, APS wears a, a robe of eyes, so they could get that if they actually end up fighting her. I should describe that too, that she's got this, yeah, wearing an eye-patterned robe. There you go. But you can also treat it into a social encounter. And basically, if they decide to do anything but fight her, I mean, DC 20 persuasion check is nothing for our uh, bard. Then they can talk with her and realize that she's uh, would normally be able to provide them with the Rite of the Arcane Octad, but... Uh, she's written her spellbook, which she suspects was jettisoned through the observatory hole, along with countless other notes and objects. They were not held down during the crash. The spellbook is enchanted with magical paper and ink that it never degrades. And kind of came up with all those uh, little notes about there, like, why is this still around? And then it's up to me. So very similar to the Tower of Abjuration, where the players didn't quite complete the Rite of the Arcane Octad. They had to go do another thing. In this case, the thing they'll probably be doing this week, which is the Arboretum. They had to actually get the wand. And in this case, they need to just get the actual right is not in the observatory, but they can use this uh, telescope in order to locate it. The telescope does have a really cool feature where it has a good chance of uh, plucking your eyeball directly out of your socket, which is kind of cool and grisly. And then it's up to me to decide where to put that thing. And that also, similar to the Arboretum, allows me to bring the players to another area that they for sure have to experience. Um, obviously, I'm not going to do it and the Nether Oak and the Arboretum, because they have to go there anyway. I don't even like that as an option. The edge of the pit at the Wellspring is also weird, because it's literally like 20 feet away from this tower. It just feels like a waste of the, um, the whole telescope thing. So it does give you an option for Robot the Bazaar, and that's probably, I'm going to do it at one of these areas in, we can go back to the map and look at it. That's probably where it'll be. Spellbook itself actually has a bunch of spells, but I don't think that matters unless you have a wizard. One of my current players' games, each player has its own minion. There are effectively eight party members on the board in combat. That would drive me absolutely insane. Holy crap. <laughs> I mean, for the same reason, I think all the, the summoning spells drive me crazy. Like, it's funny, in a video game, I don't care, and I think those are great. But in a uh, real-time game where players are, you know, you're playing with a bunch of people, and they all have their own turns, like, it sucks when somebody has, like, a super long turn. Although in the past, you know, like, uh, Reese was a druid, and it never really was a huge problem. I don't think he maybe used summons too much. Um, but, yeah, it just reminds me that it, it, this campaign has been the first one, especially, where, where one player has had one very powerful summon be very effective, at least throughout 
um, this area specifically. I guess in previous areas, like in the Rebel's End dungeon and Caves of Hunger, like maybe wasn't a big factor necessarily, but there are times where just the, the amount of hit points that this creature's got, plus its attack, plus its flying speed has just been ridiculously useful. Um, and it's just makes the character more useful and kind of, I don't know, in my opinion, makes the other characters feel worse. But I don't want to necessarily get rid of characters that have summons also. So maybe I'm not sure what the solution there is. Uh, and, you know, in terms of like pets and familiars and allies, like all of that is fine. Um, I, I don't think the solution is to give every single person <laughs> having an ally either. Though that would just, I mean, double the length of time everything takes. Well, the necromancer would probably be in awe of the high necromancer. Uh, probably, yeah. When we when we get to the necromancer, yeah, this is the the high diviner. The thing on another tower. I wanted them to go to. That's a really good idea. Um, it would certainly make it easy on me because it's like, well, we have to go to this next tower anyway. Um. Yeah, that's not bad. Let me look back at the necropolis and see. So that's the thing we need to decide basically is where to put uh to put that thing. I also want to look up the robe of eyes. How good is that? We could turn this little green slot thing into a fight. Are these things this thing is going to get destroyed though, right? With just the one against the players. Multi-attack. One with its bite or two with its claws. It's a CR8. It only uses its hurl flame twice. Do 3d6 fire damage twice. Only a plus four to hit on that thing, though. It has a once-per-day fireball, which is not a great use for it in that small room. Uh, it can use fear and turn invisible. It's got magic uh, resistance and regeneration. Uh, so it's a pretty competent spellcaster, but if it's alone, it's just going to get bodied by the whole party. I don't see them turning this into a fight, and I really don't intend to turn this into a fight, but as with all things D&D, fighting needs to be on the table. Roblox you see in all directions. You have advantage on perception checks that rely on sight. You have dark vision out to range of 120 feet. You can see invisible creatures and objects as well as the ethereal plane out to range of 120 feet. Okay. That's funny. You can be blinded by just light or daylight. That's good. I don't know if at this level it's worth an attunement slot for the players. Maybe the artificer, uh, our human artificer, would appreciate dark vision suddenly to have the best, best dark vision of the, of the group. But they're only going to get that if they fight the slot. That would be their reward. I don't see them necessarily fighting this thing. I could give it more hit points, but I don't know if that would just make things more tedious. Uh, in fact, it looks like I rolled random hit points and ended up with 103, which is pretty low. And my general rule is if it's a named creature, it should have more than average. And I keep rolling until we get above average. I never do the thing where I'm like, oh, it's automatically got max hit points. But maybe I need to do that for level 13. Uh, there you go. 133 is above average. That works. Give it that many hit points. Uh, I'm actually going to call it... Should be the name though, right? Not Green Slot. I Diviner Epius. I Diviner Epius. I think if it's here, uh, it'll show up like that instead of, even though this says Green Slot. Guy, we really need to come up with a 
an adventure that's that's really punny about salads and slods and things. It's just it's it's right there. It's on the tip of my tongue and really needs to happen. If I were to do this, no, that just shows up as green slot. Okay, we need to change this part of the name then. Try this. Diviner APS. So it needs to not be whispering. Do not whisper rolls. Never whisper rolls. Do things publicly here on roll twenty. There we go. That changed it. Okay, so that's what that's what the the main thing I was looking to change because I rarely change this part of it, uh, which you don't see that. But if I open this bottom, the way it captures my window, you don't see like the pop up windows, but. I have like a million things to scroll through. If I'm fighting like one or if I have one or two enemies on the board, I will try to do it because it looks nice having instead of saying you know Rogue Watson, it says the creature's name on there. But if I've got more than like two different creatures, it's so tedious swapping between them that I don't I don't change it. I leave this the default, but obviously it helps if this part actually says the proper creature on there. Oh boy, that's my bad roll. Two one two for five fire damage. That would just be pitiful for level thirteen. The nice thing is, at the very least, it could probably turn invisible and just try to, like, retreat or something, but, I don't know. Hopefully I don't fight this creature. I don't really see. Uh, it would start off kind of hostile, but it would not instantly uh, have... Oh, there you go. A slod named Caesar. That's a good one, Grant. <laughs> That's a great one. See? there's you could, you could bake a whole little dungeon crawl and adventure uh, out of this. That would be amazing. Oh man, now I'm just thinking about having like either factions or actual slots named after. Maybe it's like Thousand Island as the uh, as the fucking like base. It's like an actual island. <laughs> this could be really fun. There's a ranch somewhere. Uh, one of the one of the slots is just named Paul Newman because of <laughs> Newman's own salad dressing. <laughs> we get a lot of fun with that. The puns. It would never stop. <laughs> the kernel of an idea is forming. Caesar slot is great. I love it. <laughs> Lives of Demon would be much easier without dark vision and familiars. Yeah, I like. I mean, it's it's tricky because I do think pets are fun and they should serve a purpose. Um, at least, well, I'll say this. Outside of combat is what familiars are basically used for. In combat, it gets really tricky. But I played, you know, if you recall my one of my last Let's Plays, I think it was my last Let's Play I did, was the Pathfinder game, the, the more recent one. And I literally played a pet class with a giant fucking Triceratops. And it was awesome. And that thing was so powerful and made me feel great because it was such a big part of my build. I was just an archer with this. I, I was the, I think, a hunter class. Pathfinder has like 76 classes. And it was great, but I I do realize that if I was playing that in a uh, tabletop RPG with other people, like, it could be really weird that I just have this super powerful Triceratops that's like as powerful as a fighter in the party. Almost, it has you know less things it can do, but its stats were just legit. That would have felt really weird. So it, it's a tricky balance because I it, it's fun, and I'm I'm somebody who loves having you know those kind of allies and creatures. Um, but I know from a DM standpoint and just from a group setting, it, it's just, it feels weird to try to balance around that both power level and just timing wise. It just adds more time that, uh, you know, other people are just having less things to do on their turn. 
and speaks French. <laughs> so where is APS's spellbook? Um, and how much more of these things do I want the players to interact with? We talked a little bit about the Wellspring already. I actually have a map for that. I am interested in running the Wellspring. I've got those big worm stat block things I want to use. Hopefully it's it's not... I mean, it's another example of me expanding on something. Although, the book does mention the fact that this is a potential combat fight. It's a chance for them to gain, like, a buff, which I think I can maybe increase that. Uh, let's see... Meditation, benches, if they sit on the bench, they can gain a clue from the Aetheran lore table. Uh, well, never mind, that's all they can do. Okay, I would probably change that to be some other buff. They gain inspiration, or they gain, like, the bless spell for a while, or something. And if they fail, and anybody can try, but as soon as somebody fails by five or more, that's what actually awakens the creature, and then it turns into a big combat fight. Um, I guess you can always retreat, because I kind of want to have this thing be tied to the will itself, and it's just kind of a... It's weird that the, a penalty for something is we turn into a big fight. That's kind of what I'm going with. Uh, the telepathic pentacle. So that's what the wellspring is for, which I, I'm, I will add a question mark to that. Basically, you know, what I'm picturing the, the observatory doing. I know that uh, State of Decay did this really well, and, and uh, there may have been others. that I don't remember how the Zelda one worked, where, like, literally you look around the map and that, it like, points of interest appear on your map. Uh, like Ubisoft style, I guess. I don't know if Zelda did do that. I think uh, Breath of the Wild. Boy, I'm excited about that sequel coming out too. That's been a while. Long time coming. Uh, anyway, so I've got these question marks and I'm planning on label and, and putting the question marks up when they get to the observatory and that will allow me to determine which areas I actually want them to explore, which means once they get to this Tower of Divination and the top of it, that's when I need to be for sure about which ones I'm running because I'll be putting, I'll be populating the map with these question mark points of interest, which I think helps... Uh, give the players the clue about where we can go instead of saying like, well, what is this building? What is this building? So we do want to do the wellspring of answers. I think that's fun an opportunity for just a creepy creature. The rest of them I'm all up in the air about, minus of course the Tower of Necromancy, which will be a uh, for sure one, and that'll be the main next tower that they for sure do, which at that point will be their fourth uh, tower that they'll have done. But they won't, won't be able to complete the divination until they get that spellbook. So 13 is just rubble. Barney rubble. Um, the bazaar of the bazaar is just literally a rubble of an open market, and it has a headless iron golem tromping about. Obviously, I changed that to make it so it's a real... Although, they're, I, presumably, yes, they did find the head, but we could just say the rest of it got destroyed. Like I don't feel like I have to follow up on that. I just have a real shardolin golem walking around as a pretty scary like patrolling creature that they kind of have to avoid, um, which maybe it can, can patrol in here. I don't know. I'm just kind of using it to go around the area. Um, so I don't have necessarily anything I want to do over there specifically, and it could be just a question of, hey, you spot it in the rubble, you go over there, you pick it up, and then you've got it. I don't necessarily have to manufacture a event to have happen over there, although, of course, that would make a good excuse to have one. With the spellbook in the wormhole. Are you talking about, oh, yeah, the wellspring? You know, I thought about that, and that's an option, but it's it feels so dumb that she's been using this telescope, presumably, literally for... However long, I mean, she's been alive, I guess, for the whole time she was, like, transformed. I don't forget what the backstory there is. Um, and to have it be, like, so close to the tower to where she couldn't just go over there, it's like 50 feet away. I mean, I know there's Nothics roaming around everywhere, but 
like you you couldn't have gotten the spellbook yourself. I, it just feels weird to me to have it be so close. Like yes, it makes the most sense because that's the thing I want to run for sure, and it's a good way of bringing the players to that area. Um, but it feels dumb when you've got this giant, you know, you get this giant telescope, and you're like, okay, we gotta scour the city, and it turns out it's like right there, you know, like right there next to it. So I just I didn't like the fact that it would be so close. I'm not particularly liking that avenue, even though I do want to run that area. We've got Y14, which is a Hall of Silk. Uh, this one does have a bunch of mage in guarding the end. Apparently, this is a store that's still active. Uh, the mage in guarding it outside. The You walk in, and a bunch of phase spiders um, can create a robe for you, although it's not really a magic robe. It just kind of, I guess it has some illusory magic. An illusion of a magnificently dressed human flickers to life. Uh, tailor-made robe. Imagine any, any image your heart desires. The spiders can in the 10 minutes takes to create the robe. Spin any illusory design or effect into the garment. On completion, they drape the robe over the creature's shoulders and ascend back to their lair. So, I guess it's it's got some combat because it's got the mage in. Uh, you have to fight Deimos mage in outside and Galvan mage in inside. I could combine those. And then the inside of it is a bunch of phase spiders who make you a garment that's not even magical. Uh, I feel like this is an area I need to change up also. I, I don't mind the fact that it's maybe a surprise. Like you see these phase spiders and you think, oh, it's it's on, like they're coming down. But then I could have this voice crackle through and be like, all right, please don't move and let them do their work or something. And maybe they can make... Um, one thing, a silk robe spun by the spiders worth 250 gold. The characters ransack the store. They find 10 other silk robes worth 250 gold each. They're on display. So you could be like, oh, APS left it in the Hall of Silk. And so it's sitting there uh, inside that thing, in which case, that's a kind of a unique map I'd have to come up with, but it's, it's not bad. Uh, at least, you know, unlike some other areas, it feels thematically interesting like it's like all right this is kind of a weird like magic city weirdness that that feels like it would be in etherin you know unlike the i don't know what it was like hags at one point and there was a uh, the Ar the arcanaloth like all the stuff i didn't like this one at least i do kind of like the idea of it um and maybe by then it'll be quaint to fight a bunch of mage in as guards outside so i'm not opposed to putting it here in the hall of silk and just getting here, you could also trigger another uh, incursion event. I feel like I need to do those like every time they're walking any kind of long distance. What I'm really trying to track is like, have they at least short rested since the last one? Because they'll basically be happening kind of like every hour. Venture for the nozzle. <laughs> Man, I love the venture. The nozzle. <laughs> Please do not move from the nozzle. <laughs> I fucking love that show. And it was such the weirdest pacing of that show. Where you'd have like one season in like three years or something. Like it was nuts. And yet it had such a tight continuity and was so batshit crazy. Gosh, that show was amazing. I don't think I ever finished it. Because didn't they do the last season was like on some streaming service or something? Back when that was like just becoming a thing? Because obviously it was on Adult Swim forever. Back when I was watching actual like cable television. Oh my gosh, that show... I know that I bought all the DVDs at one point, and then I was watching, like, the last season, so I'm not sure if I actually did uh, end it, but it was, and they had, like, the, the, the kids grew up, like, the two, um, 
like teenage boys grew up and and became like different characters and kind of young adults and oh man, you're gonna make me go on a rant now about how much I love Venture Brothers. Yeah, I absolutely love that show. I need to rewatch all of it. It was so good, so good. The nozzle. So Mage is a dormant and no combat necessary. Uh yeah, I guess so. I don't have to throw combat at him constantly, do I? Or do I? I guess you know it's it's just pacing. It just depends. Like have have they done a lot of combat recently or have they not? Um, and Etherin should be a dangerous you know lost city full of monsters. That's certainly part of what I'm going for. Um, but not every random incursion encounter has combat. In fact, a few of them do. I made that on purpose. They're mostly like weird far realm things happening and like the effects of spells. Like the one that I did a session or two ago was clearly like. Um, I don't know if it was Hunger of Hadar. It's the one where there's a, a void and like the tentacles slurping around and all that was just literally the, the effect that they had to deal with. They'll have dealt with combat in the in basically all of these areas so far, except for House of the Arcane. Um, I guess they didn't do any combat in Tower of Conjuration, I think about it, but they did a lot of combat in the library. They will do some combat in the Arboretum. There will be a lot of combat in the Tower of Divination. <laughs> and then the Wellspring most likely will turn into combat. So I guess, yeah, you could maybe give them a break uh, for 13 and 14 to an extent. Um, I, I'm tempted. So I'm tempted if I'm not going to put the book in 13, then I should just skip it because there's nothing there. I should just not even put a question mark on it, which is why there's not one currently even on the GM layer. Because I'm thinking if it's if I'm not going to put anything there then it's not worth exploring i can just describe it you know when they're walking through and be like yeah this looks like an open air market a bunch of stores and things and a plaza and, and all that but it's all very destroyed and then if i want to i can trigger a uh random encounter i've got one that's like uh from tasha's i think where like the ground just explodes and they're like gibbering mouthers and you have to deal with all those creatures as part of the forum incursion that could be a common encounter but then yeah i'm not opposed to the hall of silk just even getting rid of the magen and just saying this is a thing you walk in and you can kind of experience it. I'm tempted to have this, the phase spiders make them some kind of a magic robe. At least maybe a basic magic robe. But maybe I don't need to. Ah, the illusion thing could be kind of fun. And then maybe they can fight the phase spiders if they want to. I don't know what that would do. Or if they do something to piss them off. Uh, you know, if they steal. If they steal from the store, then that should piss off the phase spiders enough for them to attack. I don't think phase spiders are particularly strong. In fact, they fought them many, many levels ago. But they can be certainly a pain in the ass. Ethereal plane, ethereal plane, or vice versa. I can add more. <laughs> but maybe that'll be the one optional fight, is if they decide to try and loot more of the store, the phase spiders will actually uh, fight them. I fallen off the Venture Brothers during COVID. I didn't know, I, I, I think I never maybe finished the last season or something happened. I didn't even realize it was going that long. But I do remember at some point when they when they transitioned into whatever streaming service thing they were doing. Um, I don't think I was able to. I don't think I fully finished it for whatever reason. Yeah, glamour, glamoured studded leather. Is that something we could do with a robe? Plus one bonus to AC. You also use a bonus action to speak the armor's command word and cause the armor to assume the appearance of a normal set of clothing, some other kind of armor. You know, one thing I could do. In, uh, that might be more useful for the players is instead of, hey, you have to wear this robe, you know, here's a magic robe thing. Instead, maybe it's just, hey, this upgrades your current armor. So everybody would benefit from that. Although maybe I only let one person do it. 
but it, you know, whatever armor you've got, you get a permanent plus one bonus to AC, and maybe I can turn it into this effect um, where you can change its color and things. So that's actually a pretty good idea, Grant. Um, but I don't know about letting each player... It says each guest can benefit the benefit only once, obviously, but then still, that it's kind of similar to House of the Arcane where like everybody can do the thing. Ooh, by the way, do you recall that everybody drank from the goblet in the House of the Arcane? Those things all have a delicious side effect. We haven't even gone over that yet, and I did not tell the players at all because you're not supposed to. Doesn't plug in until basically the next time they long rest, then this thing will happen. I mean, some of them are just good. Um, but I have, I did write down what everybody got. So basically this will happen the, after they do their first long rest, which they haven't done yet. And hopefully I can time that with their level up as well. They'll probably want a long rest. It, maybe it'll be after the Tower of Divination. Maybe that'll actually be a good opportunity. Um, they'll do that with APS and do all those Nothics. And then maybe they'll, or, you know, they can return to the Tower of Conjuration and go to that mansion and then, you know, rest up there and be like, look, we're low on resources. We're going to level, we're going to rest, do our long rest. And then I can hopefully pace it. We're like, all right, now's the time to, Level you guys up while you're doing that too. So while Robin got um, Necromancer, which means after his long rest, he gains resistance to necrotic damage over the next eight hours. And oh, there's somebody have a Death Ward spell. That's really good for him. Edmund got the Evoker. Um, when the turn vanishes from you, the sparks explode all around you. The sparks deal 2d4 lightning damage to each creature within 20 feet of you. I will uh, increase that damage quite a bit, and that'll be a fun thing to do. After the players get their long rest, I'll be doing that. Probably just enough to burn through their freaking temporary hit points, but at least it's something. Um, so he doesn't get anything. It just explodes. Uh, Balin, does hers matter? Charm vanishes you. One NPC, one NPC who doesn't like you now thinks better of you determined by the DM. <laughs> Is it just permanently? That's funny. We should just do a roll-off for that. Because all of them, I don't think, like her very much. <laughs> That's actually funny for her to get that. Uh, Thimbleweed is number one. Gain 10 temporary hit points and the charm vanishes from you. That literally doesn't matter because the players already gain a bunch. Um, although that would probably, that would override the old ones. That would be worse. That would You'd lose temporary hit points. Because I think his gives whatever scaling benefit from his uh, uh, feet uh, for leveling of the bard, I believe. And then this Celeste is number five. Same thing. That one also explodes. Ooh, that's a good one to get doubled up on. Two exploding people. I'll have to figure out what the proper uh, damage to roll for that is, but 2d4 is obviously not nearly ex uh, exciting enough to make a difference. And then finally, we have Frey, who's level uh, number eight. Oh, my goodness. He's targeted by a polymorph spell. Failing the saving throw automatically when the charm vanishes from you, your new form is that of a bat. And lasts for one hour. <laughs> that is the craziest one. Oh my goodness. That's wild. That's why hopefully she'll have some fun with that. That's funny. You know what I almost you know what I almost should do? Instead of a Bat, I should turn her into her, like, spirit animal, which was, like, the stoat. That might be more enjoyable. <laughs> turn it like an actual stoat. Uh, I'd have to come up with a stat block, but I, I would assume it'd be just some kind of little creature thing. Now, mechanically, if you're affected by the polymorph spell, um, I believe, yeah. It, res it reverts as a result of dropping to zero hit points. So you could game the system by just saying, like, okay, well, I'm going to come up and stab, you know, this animal who has, like, six hit points. 
and do 10 damage and then you would revert to your old form but you lose like four hit points or something like so i think metagaming wise it's really easy to solve that problem but i'm hoping the players don't do that because last time i polymorphed somebody they legit were that form for a good little bit which if you recall was i believe uh chris's character towards the end of tomb of annihilation was polymorphed into a boar and was a boar for like half of a fight before uh, like some effect or something finally did enough damage to revert him i think that would be pretty funny and i think she would get a a blast out of that for uh, a good little bit. I guess it depends on just basically the next fight you're in, you know, you would be ineffective until you would take some form of damage. <laughs> but that's fun. Uh, that's probably that's probably the most fun and craziest one of them all. Which ones did we not get to play with? Inspiration, that's very helpful, but also kind of boring. And then, is there only two that we didn't get to see? We saw one, uh, two, and three. Two, three, and six we didn't see. I believe. We got all the rest of them. So two is a flying sword appears in your space and defends you for the next 24 hours. Wow. That's pretty nice. Uh, three is inspiration. And then six is illusory magic accompanies you for the next 24 hours. We heard out to a range of 60 feet. So you have like your own theme music. That'd be kind of a fun one to RP, I think. I would literally play it as like my walk-on music. <laughs> I guess it would uh, make it so you can't stealth on anybody, but these this party rarely does that. Not a bat maker snake. No, I'm not doing that to her. <laughs> my wife's terrible fear of serpents. Bat trying to hug you. Frey goes batshit crazy. Nice. I do think that one's gonna be fun. Make Frey have to like her. <laughs> I think I'm gonna do a roll off. I think. Um, that'd be pretty funny. It does say. Um, because it does say normally say NPC, so I'm going to change that to a PC because it's NPC is the one that did it. Although it does say determined by the DM, yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. That, yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting if I kind of just forced it. <laughs> the spellbook's in the hands of the High Necromancer in the tower because they're a rival and the party must trade something for it. Uh, that was another suggestion, uh... Jerry, I forgot. Jason, was it you that suggested it? Um, which was to yeah to to put it in the in the next tower basically, uh, which would be the easiest thing for me to do for sure. Uh, they'll need to go to the, the tower anyway. Um, yeah, maybe the telescope lets you look through thing. I don't know if it says. The bad thing is, I think as written that it kind of needs to be out in the open to make it make sense. You can cast an enhanced version of the Arcane Eye spell. If you cast any range within sight, can travel 1,000 feet per minute and can see in total darkness as well as invisible creatures to a range of 120 feet. Yikes, the scary thing is you can kind of use it to scout around a little bit. I might... Oh, 1,000 feet per minute. You can cover the entire... Okay, that doesn't really make... I don't really want to do that because you would be able to cover the entire length of the city in one minute. <laughs> Instead, maybe it has some kind of, like, true sight, or... Does any spell let you, like, see through walls? Because I don't know... Unless you can see through a window, I don't know how to put it inside of anything. It's still a, just a telescope. Uh, I guess... So the telescope, as written, is actually just summons the arcane eye spell, which can travel around. But the arcane eye, as powerful as it is, it can't open doors. It can fly. I guess it could fly through a hole in the window. But then you run the risk, the same thing in Caves of Hunger, where uh, you can scout around everywhere. And it becomes like breaking of anything I want to 
be able to throw in front of the players and and puts a lot of stress on the dm having to like be prepared to explain every single area so uh, yeah arcane eye is a problematic spell for that reason in a lot of dungeons it's not bad because it's stopped by doors but the two areas they've had access to it now have been the caves of hunger which had no freaking doors and uh this necropolis which is an ancient city which is just a huge area where yeah some things are behind doors but they're also in ruins and you can just scout around all the time so yeah jason i think i'm gonna change it to you can maybe it's maybe it's got some kind of cool like thermal imaging like predator vision or something that you can kind of tease some stuff um or maybe like a detect magic too where it's it can detect um instead of being able to see through things it can Instead of thermal imaging, it's it's magic imaging, I guess, where it like things that are magical will pop up on its radar. That could be a way I could tease uh, different things. So I could tease the Hall of Silk as having some magical stuff that's popping up. Uh, and then obviously the, the Necromancer Tower would pop up. The Wellspring would pop up. It's actually a great uh, thing for me to be able to use all these areas. Those are the three that I for sure want to do, I think. The 18 down here, by the way, is... Um, was the Tower of Necromancy, but that's been changed to 15, which was the Tower of Obs... Or sorry, it was not a tower. It was the Observatory, which has now been placed in the Tower of Divination as per the Expanded Towers of Aetherin. So I don't really need to use this rubble tower down here at Y18. I may just completely skip that, and it looks just like it's destroyed rubble anyway. I think we can kind of skip that completely. That's true. Yeah, they would use it to check on... Um, those folks, uh, Valish and the Ice Devil, yeah. Um, because it can go that far. Yeah, that's. I'll have to be prepared for that. That's a good point. I'll have to be prepared for that and kind of give them a uh, heads up. Because of the... The nice thing is it has a built-in danger, right? Every minute that you use it is a chance to pluck your eyeball out. And the players will um, learn that at one point. <laughs> the, probably the hard way. So you can't just sit there on it and like watch people forever. It, it's a good system that prevents you. And the nice thing is the slot is a built-in regeneration. So you can say that she's been using it and having her eye constantly plucked out, which is why there's eyes everywhere. Um, but she regrows it, which is kind of a creepy body horror thing, which I'm into. Wouldn't all of Ethern show up as magical? Uh, not necessarily, but the Mythalar would certainly be a blindingly big magical thing for sure. It would be like looking at the sun. Uh, which maybe I can make that so you can't actually look beyond, you know, to any of these areas too much. That's kind of a DM bullshit thing about, oh, I don't want you to see this, but it kind of makes sense. Like, you literally can't even put your eye to it. And, you know, the APS can explain that the Mythlar only started a couple months ago, which is true. It's it, The timeline of my campaign is that everything has been dormant for thousands of years, although presumably some of the creatures may have still been around. I'm not quite sure on the details of that. But... Uh, the Mythlar only got restarted when basically they, uh, Baelish and Nass, or specifically Nass, uh, found it and reactivated from afar, like pinged it, and that gave it this kind of uh, booster that has caused it to start back up, but because it's damaged, it's been, you know, pretty fucked up and causing all these forum incursions, but only in the last couple months have things really been um, becoming powered up again, I think. She does it the jar, yeah, that's and that's why. It's, it's a tease of like, well, you know, this jar of eyes is because it's been plucking out eyeballs. 40 months go with the city, and you have to plot everything in advance. Yeah, so hopefully I'll be able to to at least introduce the fact that the Mythalar is blinding, like maybe even this whole part of the city, like you can't see over there. Instead, you can only see um, kind of everything 
in front of the spire which would help me out a lot or maybe i could just you know say it's got limited range in general and say you know it's got a range of like 500 feet or something that's as far as you can get and and she's been using a lot of her time to scout out the exit point and uh, maybe only recently has the caves of hunger kind of opened up so she's been looking all over these caverns for a way out so she's actually got to point it over there because i don't think it's as written she's actually been looking for her um spell book as much as she's been looking for an escape route. Uh, yeah, any mention of having recently arrived in Ether, uh, out of Escape to the Caves of Hunger, lower the DC 15, allows the check to be made with advantage. APS has not discovered the Caves of Hunger have been opened to the outside world. But I think that is what she's looking for. Several intact eyeballs visibly suspended in the cloudy goop of a jar, which is awesome. Um, and then the other thing we need to figure out is uh, 16 and 17 which is the Menagerie, which we briefly teased before about plans that I could do with it, but also I'm worried I'm just going overboard with just too much content in here. And there's nothing uh, main questy in here. And the main thing is really dumb. You can make your own little weird pet creature, but only if you decide to take 80 hit points of damage just to create a little pet thing, which seems weird. And then a Theater in Y17, which seems to be used the theme of it seems to be used in uh the tower of uh illusion which means if i wanted them to experience the role play thing maybe i could use the theater and ha and have that be a side quest benefit they get versus the right of the arcane octad and just superimpose everything in the tower of illusion into this theater um or i could go really crazy and say that this theater is the actual tower but the top of it's broken off I wonder if I could get away with that, and that way they do experience the Tower of Illusion. Even though there's clearly four towers over here. Mm. See, this is all the uh, interesting problems I've got to work my way through. But we run out of time. I think that is going to do it for this episode of Crafting Icewind Dale. If you enjoy the content, please do check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. Shoutouts to Platinum Patrons, Joe, Will, Thomas, Stan, Brandon, Genocider, David, Eclectic, Roleplay, Roll, Christopher, Brian, William, David, Corey, Code1337, Matthew, Big Nut, John, John, Chris, Scott, Gene, and Eric, and Gold Patrons, RPG, Papercrafts, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcus, Dead Lizard, Lion, Sam, Lumpy Spuds, Jerome, Nathan, Fans, Like a Tortoise, Scott, Refus, Caroline, and William. Thank you all very much for your support. If you are a Platinum Patron and you have signed up for the D&D games, I will see you tonight. Night. For the rest of you, I will see you tomorrow for D&D. &D.